This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hi, everyone. Hey, can you drop an elephant with an arrow? We're going to find out on this episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast, Questions and Answers. Hey, nobody actually asked me if I could kill an elephant with a bow and arrow, but I've got some stuff here from Africa that is fascinating. And I want to show you guys what the locals over in the desert of the Kalahari use for hunting. You see this little, well, if you're listening to a podcast, you're not seeing any of this, but I have in my hands a little stick bow with some twine on it that's about at best three feet long and it doesn't have much strength and the arrows that come with it in this little quiver made out of a quiver tree in Africa a little tree that they hollow out to make their quivers and then the arrows are tiny little things the head the broad head on that thing isn't the size of my little fingernail so how can the bushmen or the sand people hunt with this and take anything Bigger than a rabbit. Poison. This is human innovation. They did not live in an area where they had wood strong enough to make big, powerful bows to shoot big broadheads and take game by hemorrhaging. They devised poison with these tiny little points. It is absolutely fascinating. They figured out there was some grub, some insect in the ground that they could dig up and condense and mix with certain plants and make a poison that would bring down a giraffe. And I have watched some of these people in the Kalahari Desert as they hunted. It was absolutely fascinating. And that's where I picked up this souvenir bow and uh, quiver with arrows from these folks. It's uh, it's just a testament to man, the hunter, and our innovation, our ability to discover what we need to survive. It's really quite remarkable. All right, let's get into the questions from folks who saw some of our earlier podcasts and or YouTube videos and uh, had some obvious questions. 
the team here pulled them together. Here's one from Dave. And Dave asks, can you tell us your opinion on each of the Weatherby cartridges? <laughs> each of the Weatherby cartridges. Dave, do you know how long this would take? <laughs> No, I can't do that on this show, but I might do a video on it someday. It's a good idea. But I, I think I can explain a few things about Weatherby cartridges that don't require me to go through the whole list. And that is that they were all, well, not all of them, but they were started by Roy Weatherby, who wanted to get more velocity than what was available. And to do it, he went with what was then a Magnum cartridge, the 375 H&H, which had a belt on it. And he was sharp enough to understand marketing and know that that belt could be used to emphasize the strength of his cartridges, the power that they contained, because they were so powerful, they needed a belt to hold it all together, which of course is nonsense because the belt has nothing to do with holding anything back, any pressures. That's a way to headspace a cartridge that doesn't have a sharp shoulder. But he took it and ran with it. And then he threw one more little spin in there, which is a double radius shoulder, a double venturi, I guess he would call it. But Instead of having a fairly sharp shoulder where the case comes up and bends into the 30 or 26 or whatever degree shoulder it is, he rounded it. And then he rounded it again when he came up into the neck. So it was a distinctive look, and that really helped with his marketing. He got his power, however, by using really good-sized cases with straight walls and pretty, pretty flat shoulders to maximize the powder capacity. And then he also maximized the uh, chamber pressures. You know, a lot of cartridges will have fairly low maximum chamber pressure allowed, and that costs them a little bit of velocity. So like the 270, the 300 Win Mag, the 22250 Remington, all those standard cartridges will allow 65,000 PSIs of pressure. But the 280 Remington, which is the same case as the 270 Winchester, is only down around 61. Um, the 757 Mauser, I think, is down around 57,000 PSI. Weatherby's were all up there at 65,000. He went max. So that's how he was getting his velocities. Now, some of his cartridges were short enough to fit through a 30-06 length action. The 257 Weatherby, the 270 Weatherby Magnum, uh, but the 300 Weatherby Magnum, you're going right up to that full length, the same as the 375 H&H case. Um, I can't remember on his 7 rem, uh, seven Weatherby Magnum if he went longer. I think he can keep that one in a 30-06 as well. But generally, he was looking to get maximum velocity. That's it. Well, he was advertising it. He was advocating it. He really pushed it. And that's what you can expect from Weatherby cartridges. Now, the latest from Weatherby is the RPM, 6.5 millimeter RPM cartridge. The first Weatherby that doesn't have these features. No belt, no double radius shoulder. But it's a, a well thought out cartridge. And uh, it suggests a new direction for Weatherby. Right now, that company is making some really, really accurate rifles and innovative ones, some of which weigh less than six pounds. So you might want to check out. It's not the same old Weatherby. It's no longer a 10 to 13 pound Mark V walnut heavy rifle. You've got some really lightweight mountain rifles and some really sleek, fast cartridges and calibers. You might want to check those out. Uh, oh, he does ask, what is my favorite of the Weatherby's? I've got to go with the 257. I've used the 270 Weatherby Magnum quite a bit, taking quite a bit of game with it. 
But I kind of like Roy. <laughs> you go with that high velocity, and then you get a fairly small cartridge in that 257 Weatherby Magnum, and it's just fun. It's really fast and doesn't recoil a lot. So that's kind of my pick. The 375 uh, Magnum, the old one, the Weatherby Magnum, was just kind of an improved 375 H&H. That's a good one, too. All right, now here's Phil. Phil asks, I just saw your video. What can the 223 Remington really do? And I have a question. If my AR is loaded with a 223, is it still an assault rifle? <laughs> You're messing with me here, Phil. <laughs> no, it is not an assault rifle. Nobody knows what an assault rifle is. There is no such thing as an assault rifle. I think what the denigrators of the AR want it to be is fully automatic. That They want us all to think that we're using what the military would use. And of course, that's not what it is. The AR-15 is the same functionally as the automatic that Browning invented in 1900. Auto-loading rifle is all it is. Like your 1022 Ruger, it's an auto-loading rifle. It's shaped differently and it has different little features that freak some people out, but come on. Nope, sorry, no assault rifle. <laughs> oh man all right this is crime vid crime vid asks the gunsmith randy selby believes that elk numbers are dropping in the jackson hole area due to the reintroduction and lack of control of grizzly bears and wolves i just saw your take on this topic in your jackson hole video do you think these predators also play a role well of course predators play a role anyone who says no they they don't play a role at all does it's just not true. But neither is it true that they're the whole problem. What I always try to emphasize and explain to folks is that predators always were here in balance with the rest of the system. But that's because the system historically was so huge, so vast, and so fully populated with all sorts of wildlife that it didn't matter a heck of a lot if the wolf population increased to the point where they were depressing the elk population. Because if you get too few elk, then you can't feed as many wolves as increased to eat those elk. So then the wolves are going to die. The classic case is, is with the snowshoe hare and the lynx, the lynx cat up in the forests. If the snowshoe hares are having a good year and they raise a lot of babies and they bring them to adulthood, there's a lot of food to eat. So the lynx are more successful at raising their kittens and they survive too. And then they get another good year and the rabbits increase some more. Well, you know, rabbits, they breed like rabbits. <laughs> and the next thing you know, you've got hopping everywhere. And the lynx say, hot times in the old forest tonight, we're going to eat rabbit. And they do. So the population of the lynx goes up because their prey base went up. But if there get to be too many lynx or you've got a bad weather year that knocks the population of the rabbits down, or maybe they get disease because they're overpopulated, then the poor lynx population has to plummet as well because there's nothing left to eat. Similar things happened with wolves and bison and elk, I'm sure, everything. Well, here's the problem. In the modern age, we no longer have North America, north to south and east to west, covered up with game and wild country. It's all covered up with roads and cities and, and farm fields and fenced pastures with cattle in it that we don't want the wolves to eat. Cattle have largely replaced the base for feeding cougars and bears and wolves. So you have to ma manage and maintain balanced populations of all this stuff. 
And it's not easy because if you just say, well, let's just leave nature alone and she'll come home wagging her tail behind her, she might come home with no elk left because there's too many wolves wagging their tails behind them. And then the wolf population would crash or they would turn to livestock and try to eat all that. So there's always going to be this give and take up and down. But we can't say that, boy, we would have a lot more elk in Yellowstone and Jackson Hole and everywhere else in Montana and Idaho and Wyoming if we didn't have any wolves. Yeah, you would get more elk, but then you would run into the usual problems with overpopulation of that herd unless you had a heck of a lot more people hunting him and hunting them successfully. And I understand that this is one of the arguments for the anti-wolf people. It's like, why the heck should the wolf get to eat that elk? I haven't drawn a tag in four years. I want it. I understand that. And I'm in the same boat. We all are. But we also have to balance all of, of wildlife. We cannot say, let's wipe out all the predators so there's more game for us. It's selfish. Now, you have the right to be selfish. I understand that. It's not a good look. Um, I don't recommend it. And I think as caring hunters who really do care about conservation and all wildlife and wild places, it behooves us to take a reasoned stance on this stuff. And mine is, of course, that we can have some wolves and we can have some grizzly bears. We just have to maintain the populations at a reasonable level so they're not wiping out the pronghorn or the elk or the mule deer or anything else. It can be done, but it's extremely difficult. Because you have a whole faction of society that insists that no predators should be shot. In fact, hunters should be shot. <laughs> so you've got that anti-hunting nonsense going on that makes it really difficult for the scientists who know what to do to do it. And I think the best we can do as hunters is take the moral high ground by living it. Not saying let's kill all the coyotes and all the grizzly bears and all the wolves so we've got more deer and elk to shoot. No, let's say we want to maintain healthy populations of all of our animals, all of our wildlife. So let us control the populations as necessary so that one doesn't overdo it and wipe out the next one. And this is happening all over the world. Wherever man has been living and settled, you've got problems like this. But we've we understand wildlife well enough. There's been so many research projects done that we can we can balance things out. And we've proven that with the hunted species in this country now for at least 100 years. We brought them from the brink of extinction back to abundance, and we hunt them every year sustainably. We don't overdo it. We have to control the wolves and the grizzly bears so they don't under, overdo it because they don't understand quite the way we do. <laughs> they would kill and eat the last of any species on the planet and not even shed a tear just because that's what they're programmed to do. Eat, raise babies, and eat some more. That's all they think about. Humans are the only animal that actually cares about other animals. So that's my answer on the uh, excessive predation in Jackson Hole and everywhere else. All right, Andy asks, what do you think about the 204 Ruger? I think the 204 Ruger is pretty cool. It doesn't get a lot of press anymore, but when it came out, everyone was saying, man, this thing shoots about the same trajectory as the 22-250, but it's a 20 instead of a 22. Shoots a 25, 30, 35 grain bullet. Same velocities pretty much as the 50, 55 grain bullets out of the 22-250. Less recoil. You can even see the bullet land sometimes. You know, it's just really fun. Um, it's a little more susceptible to the wind because it's not just a lighter bullet, but it's a little bit shorter and it doesn't have as high a BC. 
but you can get longer BC bullets. It's always tougher to get your BCs up with a skinnier bullet. It's just part of the program. You can't get the weight up, and weight's part of BC. But I think it's a real viable option for anyone who's wanting to or needing to take care of uh, varmints in the hayfield, uh, all kinds of rodents and stuff. And it's pretty effective on coyotes. It's a real good fur option because it doesn't often blow up the pelt. And I like that. I think we should utilize natural fur because it's biodegradable, free range, all organic, shade grown wildlife. <laughs> so uh, yeah, you get yourself a 204 Ruger. You can shoot long and far and flat and fast. And uh, it's a gr great for picking up fur. Make yourself a nice winter coat. All right, John's question. I've been told that all the powder in the pistol caliber carbine cartridge will burn before the bullet exits the barrel and the bullet will actually begin to slow down. What's your take on this? Well, my take is that's true. Depends on the bullet, the length of the barrel, the powder supply, and all the rest of them. But every cartridge, every cartridge that throws a bullet will eventually reach its maximum velocity in a certain barrel length. I do know that in a 22, it's 16 inches or maybe it's 16 and a half inches. For a 22 long rifle high velocity cartridge, after 16 or 16 and a half inches of travel in a bore, the friction starts to slow the bullet down. I don't know what it is with these handguns. As I said, everyone is different, but it does happen. There's a point of diminishing returns with barrel length. Now, if you go too short of a barrel, of course, you don't get full potential out of your, your velocity because you're not really building your pressures up completely before they start to fall off again. The trick is to match the powder to the length of the burn channel and get your bullet accelerated and out the barrel before the uh, powder is all burnt and then you're starting to drag. Basically how it works. All right. Good question, John. Um, Dave. Dave asks, this question is in response to the video, this cartridge deserves a second chance. Yeah, I did that one recently. Dave asks, um, the 7mm Mauser deserves a second chance. People overlook this cartridge all the time, but it's a fantastic round, perfect for deer-sized game. What do you think, Ron? I think you're absolutely right, Dave. But I don't think the 7mm Mauser has really gone away. It's one of those nostalgic cartridges that's been around and I think will always be around. And it does, as you say, uh, just perfectly for deer. And I wouldn't hesitate to use it on elk. And of course, this is the same as the 275 Rigby cartridge that Bell used to hunt elephants in Africa. But he didn't just hunt elephants with that little cartridge. He took buffalo with it. He took eland with it, Ed Kudo, everything. When you were over there in those years, and we're talking 120, 130 years ago, you were hunting in pure wilderness and you had to supply meat for everyone. You had all sorts of helpers bringing the camp and the gear and packing your, your guns and your ammo and bringing out the tusks and the hides and carrying meat back to the villages. And I mean, it was quite an operation. So you really had to be on your toes. And what this gentleman figured out, this uh, Caramojo Bell, was that he could pack a lot more ammunition in the 757 than in some of the big 45s and 500s that were out there for elephant hunting, as long as he 
made his shot just right. So he was shooting meat every day for all of these porters and camp assistants and helpers. So he had to take a lot of animals. And then in most places that he hunted, he also had to supply the local villagers because the chief would allow him to hunt elephants if he was providing food for the villagers. So it's just a pretty good system. But man, that made that cartridge. The, the Brits called it the 275 Rigby, but it was just a 757 Mauser. And it's still around. And several companies are um, loading ammo for it again. Hornaday's come out with some. They even call one of them the 275 Rigby. And the Rigby company is making that bold action rifle again. It's a pricey one, but it's a beauty. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're right. Other than that, in the common rifles, affordable rifles, Boy, the last ones that I've seen chambered for it are probably the Ruger number one single shot. But um, I've seen it in Dakota, 10 single shots as well. But you don't see it very often in the bold actions anymore. Its place has been taken by the 7mm 08 Remington, which is almost the same size. It does the same thing. It's a little bit shorter in the powder capacity, but it is allowed higher chamber pressures. So it shoots as fast as, or slightly faster than the 757 Mauser. And it fits in a short action, the 757 Mauser, little bit long. You can usually get it in a seven, in a short action, but sometimes you can't get those longer bullets like the 175s to, to fit in it. But yes, I agree. Overall, I think people overlook the old cartridge and it deserves to be hanging around a lot longer. I just hope some of the common rifle manufacturers chamber for it again. Browning, Winchester, Remington firing up again, Ruger, uh, Savage, you name it. I think it's worth having out there because it's got so much history, so much nostalgia behind it. All right, this is Robert. Are there lead-free expanding bullets? Where I live, you can only hunt deer game for that, any game for that matter, with expanding ammunition from a centerfire rifle. I'd appreciate your suggestions. Well, absolutely, Robert. The um, lead-free expanding bullets are pretty much all of the copper bullets that aren't advertised as a solid. There have always been solid bullets which don't expand, and they're for deep penetration on big animals in Africa mainly. Um, but all of the, the copper bullets for deer hunting and elk hunting over here are designed to expand, and they do it beautifully and quickly and reliably. I've always been impressed with the expansion of the Barnes bullets. I'm starting to play around with the hammer all copper bullets now, and they're really impressive. Cutting Edge has bullets. Winchester has the new copper bullet. Um, Federal, everybody has copper bullets now, and they use hollow noses to expand. Some of them will have a polymer tip on top, but behind that polymer tip, it's hollow. So that tip will drive back in often when you land that bullet, and that starts it opening. But if there's no tip there, the hollow itself will take moisture from the tissue and that will open it up dramatically and quickly. If you search the internet, um, Google bullets going through ballistic gelatin, and there are some videos of these all copper bullets striking the gelatin and opening within two or three inches, fully open, and you can see the pedals spinning around and they come out the backside still going, and it's pretty impressive stuff. So yes, that's all you need. Just get yourself some hollow point or hollow point with a polymer tip bullets in you, any brand that's got them out there. They really work well. So pick some up and you're ready to go. And uh, that looks like we're at the end of the line here, guys. So once again, I thank everyone for sending in your questions. Once again, I hope I answered them correctly. 
If I didn't, let me know, because we will certainly correct it. We want everyone to get the good information. Thanks for watching. Subscribe to the channel. Give us a thumbs up if you can, and hats off to our patrons. We always appreciate your support. As always, this is Ron Spomer on Honest and Shoot Straight. Anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know, right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.